0: Welcome back to Balagan. I am Kobi Cohen. There is never a dull moment in Israel, and it seems that the place that ignited the last round of violence in May, the small neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, is once again a place of clash between hard right-wing Jews and the local Palestinians. What is happening there and why? For that, we have Noah Pinto to explain. Noah is a Jerusalemite born and raised social justice, climate and peace activist, a part of Free Jerusalem Group activist and a former associate at Iramim, a non-for-profit organization for equitable and stable Jerusalem with an agreed political future. Hi, Noah, and welcome to Balagan. Hi,
1: hey, Kobe. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. So what's new in Jerusalem? What's going on in Sheikh Jarrah?
1: Right now we're talking um, about a very, very delicate, uh, very... Explosive event situation happening at the moment in Sheikh Jarrah, but I think in order to understand the events of the past week or so, and also the events of last May, we should probably go back and understand the context of Sheikh Jarrah. Sheikh Jarrah is a neighborhood in East Jerusalem. It was uh, the first Palestinian neighborhood outside the walls of the Old City. Was considered a very prestigious neighborhood before 48, And in that neighborhood, there was a majority of Palestinians and a minority of Jewish residents, I'm talking before 1948. Now, in 1948, call it the Independence War, call it the Nakba, call it whatever you prefer. As we know, a lot of Palestinians left their homes uh, all around Israel. And left, escaped, were expelled, whatever you terminology you prefer to use about this, and also a minority of Jewish residents, the people who used to live in East Jerusalem, also had to leave their properties. Some of them before forty-eight, but until forty-eight, the Jewish residents left their properties, and of course, as we know. Jewish people arrived in Israel and took over the properties that Palestinians left behind all around Israel. And also, East Jerusalem became part of Jordan. Now, as East Jerusalem became part of Jordan, the Jordanian authorities had a very organized list of what properties belonged to Jewish people before before 1948, which is a thing that the Israeli authorities did not have for the Palestinian properties. And so come 1967, East Jerusalem becomes part of Israel or is annexed to Israel. And the Israeli law is now the law in East Jerusalem.
0: Jerusalem. At
1: that point, in 1970, a new law is made. It is part of the legal proceedings law. And this law says that whatever properties used to belong to Jewish residents, according to that list in the Jordanian authorities, Jewish residents can claim that property back. Now, this is a time to maybe say that, of course, Palestinians cannot claim back their properties that they lost in 1948. And that is because of another law that is the absentee property law.
0: From Um, 1950, that was...
1: Yeah, yeah, a law from 1950 that was uh, created exactly for this purpose, saying that if someone left the country to a specific list of countries, which is where most Palestinian Fled. residents yeah. before 48 left to, the state can claim their property and do more or less whatever the state wants with that property. So we have here two laws that together make it the situation that Palestinians cannot claim back properties that they lost in 1948. And Jewish families, Jewish residents can do that, can claim back property that they lost in 1948. And that situation creates a very unique and difficult situation in Sheikh and also in a few other neighborhoods, mostly in Sudwan that is another East Jerusalem neighborhood just south of the Old City.
0: Yeah, Sheikh Jarrah is north of the city, about half a kilometer, right? Yeah, Sheikh Jarrah is
1: right uh, north of of,
0: the uh, the Old City. And Silouan
1: is is just south of the Old City, which also makes these two neighborhoods very important in the general context because they are very close to the holy sites. And that makes people a lot more... Uh, willing uh, to fight for them and having they, they hold an important place for both the Jewish residents and the Palestinian residents. So the families in Sheikh Jarrah have been living there for decades, some of them since 1950s, some of them since 1948. The families were there for many, many years. And as this law was created, the Jewish settlers used this law in order to try and take over these houses,
0: I want I want to stop you for a second because you're saying yeah. the Jewish settlers. I mean, so whoever claims these properties now, it's not the families that used, or let's say the successors of those families who lived there seventy and eighty years ago. Correct. True. It's, It's not that the families are trying to go back and say, hey, you know what? I want to go back uh, to live uh, close to Sheikh Jarrah.
1: Yeah, true. Uh, It's very, very rarely the actual family. I don't know of any case where it's the actual family itself. What happens usually is settler organizations find a way to get a hold of these properties. So they have a few ways to do that. One of them is... Some of these properties, both in Shekdach and in Sinwan, were, as their owners died, in their will, they left it to a trust. Originally, they were owned by a trust. And the, the thing about a trust is it's not a specific person. The people who inherited the trust are the people who inherited the management of this trust. And the southern organizations find ways to get a hold of those trusts with the help of Israeli authorities, uh, I must say, that are willingly giving them the power over these uh, properties. Some places we know of uh, settler organizations buying, paying a lot, like very, very large amounts of money to the inherits to the people who inherited the properties, so the successors of the families. We are talking about ideological settler groups. Are doing whatever they can to get a hold of these properties. Some of the things uh, that we can say publicly because they were exposed in the media is we know ateret Kuanim, which is a settler group mostly active in Sunwan used offered prostitutes to people for selling houses. We know of uh, threats. I don't know what amount of threats. We can say that actually happened and I can say publicly, but I've heard from Palestinian residents about threats from settler organizations. We know these are groups that are doing everything in their power in order to take over those homes because they are doing it from a very strong ideological belief that what they are doing is preventing the division of Jerusalem and what they are doing is maybe reclaiming a Jewish right of of Jerusalem and of this place.
0: And they are using these two laws in order to take over the properties.
1: Yes. But exactly. since
0: you already have the Palestinian tenants living there for ages, it goes to the Supreme Court, right? Usually.
1: It goes to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court is limited by the law. And since we know the injustice is built in inside these two laws, as long as these two laws are in effect, then the Supreme Court has to rule in favor of the settlers. So these cases are happening in different uh, legal Terms, courts. yeah, And families are in different stages of their legal proceedings. But eventually our hope from the legal system is very, very slim, um, unfortunately, in these cases. We have two major things happening right now in Shekhtarach. One thing is that the Salem family that are living in their house for around 70 years got to the end of their legal journey. There is nothing more that they can do legally. Court ruled that they have to be evicted from their home and they can be evicted between the 1st and the end of March. So during March, the Salen family, we're talking about 16 people living in this house, three generations, and they can be evicted, which of course raises the tension in the neighborhood. People are trying to prevent this eviction. People are angry about this eviction that is about to happen. The other thing that happened recently in the past few days is that a member of Knesset Itamar Ben-Gvir decided to put up what he calls a parliamentary office mm. in the neighborhood. The reason he claims he did it is because uh, a few days before that, I think it was Friday or Saturday, one of the settler's houses, a settler that lives in the neighborhood. The
0: fire.
1: Yes, had a fire. I don't know if it was lit on fire on purpose or not. Um, I've heard uh, the opinions are varied on this. The Palestinian residents of the neighborhood claim it was an electrical uh, uh, fire. It happened, uh, just no one started it. Settlers, of course, claim someone set the house on fire. I don't know what the true story is. I can say the police said it's probably an intentional fire. Ben Gvils' claim is that the police are not guarding the settlers in this neighborhood.
0: No, just... Allow me to just uh, Yeah, maybe we need another context Itamar about Ben-Gver Itamar ben Ben-Gver Yes. Itamar Ben-Gvir is a hard right-wing extremist. He is uh, Rabbi Meir Kahana's, uh, one of his students. He got famous in the 90s, and I'm saying famous uh, with the quotation marks because uh, he took off the symbol from uh, Itzhak Rabin's Cadillac a couple of weeks before he was assassinated. And ever since then, he's been... Yeah, maybe you should say he
1: took the symbol and he said, we'll get to him. We'll
0: get to Rabin, just like we got to the car and to the symbol. And ever since, he's been provoking along with his friends. it started in Hebron, but it wasn't limited to Hebron going all around the state and provoking fights and fires with Palestinians. And he did yeah. the same thing, by the way, in May, if I remember correctly.
1: He did the same thing in May, and that was one of the main triggers for the event in May. We can talk about, I think there were a few triggers to what yeah. happened in May, but definitely I can say that the chief of police uh, said that the main person that needs to be blamed for what happened last May is Itamal
0: ben That's because he was afraid of the former prime minister. So we couldn't say. It
1: like uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but still, it's a, uh, yeah, maybe we can, we should say about Itamal ben He has a photo of uh, Baruch Goldstein in his house. Baruch Goldstein, who did, uh, horrendous, who did the horrendous massacre
0: uh, in Marat uh, machpela in uh, 1994. Yeah that he murdered 29 Palestinians, if I remember correctly.
1: I think so.
0: And a lot of people say that that was the first, actually, I would say, uh, suicide terror attack. Because before Baruch Goldstein, even when we had terror attacks in Israel, it wasn't with suicide bombers. And ever since, right after it, uh, the Hamas uh, scaled up what they were doing. And he was another uh, Mayor Kahana's uh, student, made a grew up in Brooklyn, just like Kahana himself. And he's, mm. and Itamar Gvir is very proud of being uh, a Jewish supremacist, to, to call it this way.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he doesn't I mean,
0: shy like others.
1: Yeah, he's not shy. He, he is a lawyer. Sometimes you can tell by the way he speaks, he is very careful not oh, to cross definitely. the law. He's not crossing the law as he speaks, but he's very proud of being a Jewish supremacist. When asked about Baruch Goldstein, he says he's a doctor. I have great appreciation for his work as a doctor, and that's why I have his picture. Anyway, so obviously when he arrives to a Palestinian neighborhood that is in a fight for keeping the neighborhood Palestinian and for keeping the families in their homes, in the place where they've been living for the past decades— when someone like Ben Bengala arrives in a neighborhood like that, puts up a tent and puts up a, a desk and claims that now he his office is in the heart of this neighborhood, that obviously raises the, the, the tension in the neighborhood. Also, he's not coming alone. He's coming with um, his followers. And his followers sometimes are very prone to get into physical fights with the residents of the neighborhood. And we've seen that happening in the past few days. When he was there, the people around him got into actual physical clashes. And of course, this triggers a lot of um, a lot of the residents. Yes, it triggers the residents, and also it triggers Palestinians in general. The last round in May, we saw we saw Hamas waking up because of things in Sheikh Jarrah, and also because of things in Al-Aqsa but definitely this is a major turning point in the sense that this is a person that came there knowingly to set a fire, to set clashes happen, to try and make this. He gets a lot of media attention from it. I can see that he, I mean, he for him, he, he enjoys it. He, he gets uh, all the public attention of the whole country on yeah. him, but what he's doing is insane in the sense that it's, triggering
0: uh, a war. And just to explain to our audience, I mean, when we're talking about Sheikh Jarrah and Selwan, we're talking about thousands of Palestinians living there and a couple of no more than, I would say, 150 to 200 Jewish settlers who are coming in to show that there is a Jewish presence in the neighborhood.
1: Yeah, I'm not um, sure about the current numbers of settlers, but we're trying I to talk about a few one, bigger,
0: but uh, in, in yeah, Shimonat yeah. Sadiq, if I remember correctly, it was always a lot smaller. Because even the houses that the settlers claimed that those are Jewish uh, assets, we're talking about maybe a couple of houses within a huge Palestinian neighborhood. So it's not that the Jewish community in Sheikh Jarrah had a huge piece of Sheikh Jarach it was a really small neighborhood called Shimon HaTzadik that was called that because there is a uh, the burial ground of Shimon HaTzadik who <laughs> <laughs> was a prophet not a prophet but uh, no. I don't HaTzadik. I'm sorry but he was a was a, a Jewish saint.
1: yeah but also i think the point is not how many jews lived or didn't live in Sheikh Jarach the idea is is this Very, very clear injustice, very, very clear lack of equality when we're saying even if the whole Shakhtar was Jewish, the fact is that the Palestinian residents can't claim the houses that they lost in 48 and the only people who can claim houses that they lost in 48 are Jews. And so the discussion of whether how many Jewish people used to live in Shakhtar before 48 is not the point. Right now, we're talking about 72 houses in Sheikh Jarrah that are trying to be evicted in some place in their legal process. And we're talking about 97 houses in Silwan. and uh, a few more inside the whole city. I don't know the number, but there are also a few inside the Muslim quarter. Yeah, these are not insane numbers. The Sheikh Jarrah will hopefully, probably, never become a fully Jewish neighborhood. Of course, that's what they're trying to do. So I wouldn't say never because these people are working very hard to make it a fully Jewish neighborhood.
0: They are fully committed. Yes, give them yes they are
1: fully committed. So, so I'm taking back the fact that I said never. We never know. But the fact is that the majority of the neighborhood is Palestinian with a few Jewish settlers living inside this Palestinian neighborhood. Of course, it's also very hard and creates clashes on a daily basis, both in Silwan and in Sheikh When you have neighbors that some of them are Palestinians and some of them are Jewish settlers that came to this neighborhood with the purpose of kicking out the Palestinians. So that does not create good neighboring uh, relations. I can say that also... The settlers have security and that security is paid by the Israeli taxpayer Yeah, and costs a lot of money.
0: It's a private different. security company that uh, that is being paid by the minister of
1: housing. Yeah, of housing. the minister yes. of housing. Yeah. So that's also something that we as Israeli citizens are paying large amounts of money to this private security company to keep these settlers in their houses that they took from Palestinians living there decades and to create clashes inside these Palestinian neighborhoods and to prevent peace. What we saw last May is for the first time that I remember Sheikh Jarrah being the focus of not only Israeli media and not so much Israeli media as it was the global media, the whole world was looking at Sheikh And now I hope the fact that everyone is watching this neighborhood and the fact that everyone knows that this injustice is happening, I hope it will make the Israeli authorities not be stupid enough to evict uh, the Salem family. I'm not sure that that's actually a possibility, but the Israeli authorities, if they want to not evict the family, they can. And Right now, with the current security situation and with the current um, with the tension,
0: with all the tension yeah, going on,
1: with all the tension going on, with how delicate the situation is. I think you have to be very stupid to come and evict this family right now. Ramadan is also around the corner and we know Ramadan is always a tense time of year.
0: Just for our audience, the Ramadan is a Muslim holiday that throughout the period of a month they fast throughout the day and they it's not exactly celebrating uh in the evening but it's a period of some sort of an intermediate fasting i would say that's why it's very tense because the people are on you know they fast throughout the day so when you are low on energy it's a lot easier to trigger you
1: that's one reason also it's a time where people are gathering Right. when people, there's more of a community gathered together and, and then people for organize for demonstrations and people organize for whatever thing is happening. It happens a lot more intense during Ramadan. Uh, and we saw that last year in May, one of the first triggers for the events was the Israeli police put up fences on the stairs of Damascus Gate. Now, Damascus Gate, this is something that Israelis don't know, is the community heart of Palestinian East Jerusalem. It's a very, very important place. And during the month of Ramadan, every evening, it's a traditional place where people meet, drink tea, talk, or celebrate. It's a traditional place of gathering. And as we said before, when people gather, sometimes these people... It's uncomfortable for the authorities. It creates a mess. It creates maybe people gather together. Maybe they will gather together to disturb the, the peace. And so the Israeli police decided to prevent this gathering by putting these fences. And that was one of the first thing that triggered the events because the Palestinian public would not have it they were very, very mad. And they gathered there every night to protest those fences and eventually got them removed. And I think part of the energy that happened there later went into having this success story. We made it, we, we got the Israeli authorities to remove the fences. When that was done, then these same youth, some of them, Changed the place of meeting uh, every evening to meet in Sheikhach, where the families were having their struggle against the eviction. Another thing that happened is in Al-Aqsa, Temple Mount, we saw extreme police violence or uh, maybe police violence is a term that already assumes what I think about it. But we saw police using extreme measures inside the mosque, including stun grenades, including gas. We saw many people injured by the way the police was behaving in the holiest place for uh, Jerusalem Palestinians. I can say that. Not the holiest place in Islam, but the place where the Jerusalem Palestinians feel is.
0: I would say that it's a symbol for them. It's a national
1: symbol. Definitely. Definitely. Oh, no, and,
0: no, even more than it's a religious symbol.
1: Yes, for sure, for sure. Even more than a religious symbol, it's a cultural symbol. It's, if you talk, there, there is also a traditional religious uh, role for the people of Jerusalem that they are the guardians of el It's something that I've heard from multiple people living in Jerusalem. It is our role as Jerusalemites to guard this place. So this is a very deeply rooted Role that people are having to guard the Al-Aqsa Mosque and to guard the Temple Mount.
0: So well, that, any... we, that we can say, by the way, that it was taken from the from the Jordanians who took it from the Turks, by the way. Because what? The, the, because the Jordanians has the Waqf. They're technically still are the guardians of the of. Uh,
1: Yeah, no, I'm not talking about who officially uh, manages the place, which is, yes, the Jordanians, the the Jordanian waqf officially manages the place. And and that's a whole different discussion. But I'm saying it is very, very important in the identity of East Jerusalemites that there will be no harm to the Aqsa Mosque, that the place will be kept Muslim and that the Muslim people can pray in it. And so we see that this is a point of sensitivity, that anytime something happens there, it has great consequences. And I think that is one of the things that happened in May. And a third thing that happened is a very specific personal thing, is that the Sheikh struggle suddenly had a voice, a public voice, and that's mostly the twins, Muhammad and Muna al-Kud. Muhammad and Muna al are, are 25, I think, right now, or 24. They are born and raised in Sheikh Jarrah. They are struggling for their house. Their house is one of the houses that is under the threat of eviction. Muhammad also had some studying in the States, and he speaks perfect English. Muna he does all, the, all their work in English. Muna does all their work in Arabic. And they became social media superstars. And the fact that Sheikh had a strong opinionated voice in English of a resident and a strong opinionated voice in Arabic of a resident, um, both tech savvy, both knowing how to use these tools for their benefit, also, I think, played a huge role in how the events of May turned out because it allowed the struggle of Scheftarach to reach globally and within Palestinian society.
0: Our time Uh is about to end, but I do want to ask you one last question. I'll split it to two parts. The first one, where is the Israeli government and the Israeli authorities? And the second thing, what do you think will happen? Do you think that, you know, everybody's talking that now... There is a new government, what some people call the change block or the change government. Do you think there's going to be any change in policies in the term of Sheikh Jarrah? Because eventually Um, they don't have the interest of having another round of violence between Israel and Palestinians at the moment.
1: So I think the Israeli government has a clear interest to stop the violence. And in that sense, maybe it will do something as not evict the family, or something like that. I don't think this government is an ideological change in the deep sense. And I don't think it will do any long-term solution to this situation, unfortunately. So I think this government is still, it has a lot of right-wing MKs in it. Most of this government is center to right. Um, the left is in, in this government is powerless in many senses, especially when it comes to things that are related to the occupation and related to Palestinians. So I think this government, if it's smart, it will do what it can to neutralize this bomb at this moment, try and create some sort of, of stability and uh, and and. Prevent things from escalating into a full on war, I hope. But I don't think there is much hope for an actual long term change in this government. I would gladly be surprised. (laughs) I would be very happy to be surprised. But I think um, the right in this government is too strong. Jerusalem is such an important symbol, and it would be very hard to pass anything that requires what can be perceived as giving up property in Jerusalem. So hopefully they won't evict the family. Hopefully they will get Ben out of there as soon as possible. Hopefully the police will be smart enough to behave uh, more cautiously in al and in Sheikh Jarach and have some sort of tactic of de-escalation instead of escalating which is what they did in May but that's as high as my hopes are getting
0: yeah so I mean it's not too optimistic but let's hope that the band-aid they're gonna put now is gonna hold and let's hope for a good solution
1: um, yeah yeah definitely definitely
0: No, I really want to thank you for, uh, you know, sharing the information with us. You really brought us a lot of, you know, things to think about and to learn. And uh, let's hope for better days in Jerusalem.
1: Definitely. Definitely. Thank you for having me.
0: Our pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.